join in studying God's Word. I'm always uh, thankful for these opportunities to come out here each year and what a blessing it is to me to be able to study the lessons, to be able to meet with such fine uh, brethren who love the Lord, who desire truth, and love to do what God says. That's what it's all about, isn't it, here on this earth? It's all about doing what God wants, preparing for eternity. The chapters I have been assigned for tonight are from John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We'll be looking at those momentarily. I want to begin, though, by talking about something that has affected not only the world, but has crept into the church in so many places that oftentimes we don't even know that it's taken place. There's a fancy term out there that I'm sure most of you have heard. That term is postmodernism. I remember hearing about it a lot and, and wondering what does that mean? What does it mean to be postmodern? Well, after doing some research, I did some lessons uh, several months ago on this. Postmodernism is based on five things. It's based on pluralism, which is the acceptance of everyone with no regard to exclusivity. In other words, that everybody's okay. There's no such thing as, as uh, right and wrong, really, in this sense. There's no such thing as someone can be wrong and someone can be right. Now, pluralism is good to a point, obviously. God is no respecter of persons, right? He wants everyone to be saved. But at the point you become a Christian, there is an exclusivity that comes. He expects you then to be His. Exclusive to Him, away from the world, right? And so, pluralism says no. Everyone, no matter what you believe, no matter what you think, no matter who you are, everybody's right. It then has the word tolerance. Now, we hear that a lot today, don't we? The word tolerance has become one of the most misunderstood words, I do believe, in all the English language. At least as we see it today, the word tolerance nowadays means, and as it means in postmodernism, is to tolerate your own values and no one else's. If someone disagrees with you, well, then you're intolerant and not tolerating them, but they don't have to tolerate you. That's really what it's become known as. And so in this postmodern age we live in, we see pluralism, everyone's okay. Tolerance, as long as I will tolerate you and you can tolerate me as long as you don't disagree with me. The third pillar is secularism. And that is the rejection of all religions, right? Postmodernism, and we see it more and more, right? Well, we, we can't hold on to those old paths of righteousness. We can't hold on to those old traditions like Christianity. You know, talk show after talk show, we hear people saying things like, well, Christianity is ruining America. It's not true. It's the opposite, isn't it? But that's what we're hearing, right? And so secularism and postmodernism says that we need to get rid of all religion and worship of any so-called deity outside of our own selves and our own quote-unquote fellow man as long as they think like you, remember. The next one is pragmatism. Pragmatism, excuse me. That is, the more something is accepted, the more it must be true. The more people think, for example, homosexuality is okay, the more that must be true. After all, if the majority of people start thinking it's right, it has to be right. Which leads into what I really want us to discuss tonight and, and which deals with what Jesus is trying to get people to understand, and that's relativism. You've probably heard it this way, the truth is relative. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me, and what's true for me is not necessarily true for you. Truth is sub subjected to our own personal biases, our own thoughts, our own desires. Atheism thrives on this, doesn't it? To a certain degree. In other words, once again, if you agree with them, then, then you have truth on your side. If you don't, then you must be ignorant of all things. And it's that idea of truth is relative that's been really in this postmodern age been pushing very hard many of our universities these there are classes upon classes on this idea of relativism truth is relative remember a long time ago the director at that time of Brownsville School of Preaching who's passed away by now 
Bob Stapleton, he said one time, he said, you know, to those who would say truth is relative, I sometimes want to go up to them and pop them on the head and say, is it true that hurts? <laughs> we see the fallacy, we see the craziness of that, and yet, how many people believe that? Not just in the world, it's really crept into the church. It's starting to become more and more prevalent, even in the body of Christ, which is why I bring it up tonight. Because Jesus in chapter 7 and chapter 8, He deals with this aspect. In John chapter 8 and verse 32, what does He say? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set or make you free. Jesus was establishing a concept. He was establishing truth and what it was. To a people who were struggling with that, they were trying to even ask the question, is this the Christ? Is it true or not? And so when we think of this idea of truth being relative, I want us to keep that in mind as we look into this. Even old Pilate asked Jesus, well, what is truth? And so this isn't a new concept, but it is that which we must face because as I said, the more and more the world starts buying into this, selectively, mind you, the more, like so many things, it eventually creeps in in little ways. And so as we go through this and as we talk about this, I'll explain and give illustrations of that, that we can help ourselves and guard ourselves against that so that it does not affect us because... Brothers and sisters, when we talk about truth, it is the, of, of the utmost importance. There is no good life here or an afterlife if we don't understand truth. And the power and the dangers, power understanding it, danger of not. So the first point we're going to talk about tonight, tonight is truth is vital to everything. Truth isn't one of those things we get to pick and choose like so many want to do today and decide, well, I like that for me here and I like this truth here and that truth here and then I'll reject the rest. That's not what truth is. That's not what the child of God is supposed to do. But that is what we're seeing. This idea that there's no such thing as absolute truth is mind-boggling to say the least. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. But it does fit a standard of ideas that are being promoted, right? If you don't want to be told you're wrong, what do you say? Well, that's your opinion. Doesn't matter how many facts you might have to back up that opinion. Doesn't matter if truth is on your side. If you can just turn the narrative right, say that's your opinion, might I even say, as we sometimes hear in the church, that's your interpretation. When we talk about truth, truth is always truth. Relativism, or this idea that truth is relative, is dangerous. We see it all over. How many people are divided right now in our country on political things, and neither one of them care about the truth? All they care about is saying they're right. One says, I'm right, you're wrong. The other says, no, I'm right, you're wrong. No one's giving facts hardly, are they? You might get some here or there, and you get a little bit here and there, but it's scary to think about. In fact, if you really want to try to get to many of the facts, it's almost impossible to find the truth. They're so convoluted. When it comes to the church, this type of idea has really like I said, started to come in and it's really killing the church. How many congregations do we know where we know where they once stood on the pillar and ground of truth and no longer do? I can think of many just in northeast Oklahoma. I grew up in Oklahoma City. I, I know of many of the congregations I have there in Ramona, several members who are well up there in age, and they talk about, well, this congregation, we used to do this, and this congregation, that, and now they're either dead, or they're so far off, you can't even call them the church anymore. In fact, many of them don't call themselves the church anymore, do they? They've dropped the name of Christ off their name completely. 
Why is that the case? How did it get that way? What happened to cause that? Well, I don't know exactly when the shift took place, but about 40, 50 years ago, we started seeing a shift from everybody demanding truth to people saying, well, your opinion, my opinion. Your interpretation, my interpretation. We stopped demanding facts and saying, listen, what does the Bible say? Prove your point. And we became a people, instead of proving God's Word, we just simply started accepting what everyone else would say. Well, if my preacher said this, I agreed with him. Well, if I didn't agree with him, I'm not going to argue about it. He can have his opinion, I can have mine. His interpretation, my interpretation. We stopped demanding proof. Just a few Wednesdays ago, we were in a discussion. I love Ramona. They do get into discussions, and we got into a good one, and we were talking this and going that, and we were, listen, okay, what does it say here, and what does it say there? And there were some differences of opinions, let me tell you that. And we had three of them, so I know not everyone was right. And so we started discussing, we started looking at, and the lesson I had planned, we kind of went, whoop, you know how that goes, that rabbit. And a few people said, hold on, let's get back over here. And I said, hold on, if this wasn't so important, yes, but it was a part of salvation. It was a salvation issue. And I said, no, we need to stay here. Because we're not to be divided, we're to be united on truth. I said, there's only one truth. Somebody here is wrong. And it might be me, it might be you, it might be all of us, and there's a truth out there, but there is a truth. And what better time than when we're all gathered together than to look at it and examine it. Obviously in love and kindness, and it was done in such a fashion. But we can't be a people who are okay with saying your interpretation is yours and my interpretation is mine. The Bible does not have that word even in it. There's no concept within the Scriptures where God says, listen, you can have your interpretation and I'll have my interpretation. What does he call that? He calls that sin, doesn't he? He says, listen, if you want to think the way you want, I'll let you. I'll send even a strong delusion, 2 Thessalonians 1. I'll send that strong delusion, or chapter 2, excuse me, verse 11 and 12. I'll send it. In other words, I'll allow you to dilute your mind all you want in unbelief. But God says, that doesn't change. I'm right, and this is truth. It just makes us realize the reality of this concept, we can agree to disagree as being about as false as there is, isn't it? Paul would tell a congregation that was as divided as it could be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, let us all speak the same things, have the same mind, and be of the same judgment, right? That should be our motto, if you will, across every building. We strive to speak the same things, have the same mind, and be of the same judgment, but unfortunately... That's not always the case. So unfortunately, we've allowed this idea of relativism, truth is relative, to kind of creep in. Well, in, in this idea of tolerance and, and me not wanting to argue, maybe. And there's nothing wrong with arguing as long as it's done in kindness. Arguing doesn't mean mad, it just means defending your point. And hopefully in logic, reason, with truth. There's nothing wrong with arguing in that sense, but... For some reason, we pulled away from debating each other, challenging each other. We were afraid we would cause an issue. Jesus, the whole time in His ministry, challenged the people. If they were right, He praised them, didn't He? Who did Peter say that Christ was? That He was the Son of God. Peter, you are right. To the Pharisees who wanted to test Him and argue in a mean-spirited way, right? To even kill Him. He called them whitewashed walls. Why? Because they didn't care about truth. They didn't love truth. In our chapter, John chapter 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set or make you free. Now there's a powerful word in there, and that's the word know, right? 
If we can know something, it's not subjective, it's objective. In other words, it's not based on my opinion, my personal biases, my opinions, or things along this lane. No, it's based off fact. If I know something is true, if I know 2 plus 2 equals 4, and I do, then it's not my opinion, those are facts. It's not subjected to your desires or my desires, my hopes or your... No, it's just simply fact, isn't it? And Jesus said concerning truth, we can know it. It's based in facts. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, he would say it this way, faith is based on substance and evidence. Substance and evidence. Now it's based on the unknown... What you cannot see, in other words, unknown, that's the wrong word, what you cannot see. But we can know God exists. Why? Because He's truth and what He's given us is truth. And the facts and the evidence back it up. An illustration I like to use is this. I can know Japan exists even though I've never been there, can I? Now, to say that means I, in the Bible sense, I have faith Japan exists. Now, I've never been there. I've met one person who's been there. In all my life, I've met one person. I don't think she was lying to me anyway. <laughs> but I've seen the maps. I've read the articles and seen the shows from there. I've seen the evidence. It exists. I know it. I know George Washington exists. I have faith. Biblical faith is what that means. That George Washington existed. Why? The evidence and the substance that backs it up. I've never seen him. I don't even know anyone who's met him. But I know he existed. It's that same faith, that same thing to know, is what Jesus is talking about here in John 8 32. You shall know the truth. And the truth is more than the Word of God. It is the Word of God, but it is. He who gave us the Word of God. Truth is not subjective, it is objective. It is based on the facts. If you can know something, it isn't based on personal perspectives, feelings, or opinions. It's based on the facts, and not hard facts, because all facts are hard facts. It's based on facts. And so when we search the Scriptures, let us not be caught up in truth is relative. Let us understand and realize that we are there to study and know God's Word. Are there opinionated issues? In other words, issues we don't have the full information concerning? Yeah, Romans 14 tells us there are things that are based in opinions. I don't know when Satan was created. All right? Now, you can have an opinion on that. We're not given enough information, but I do know He was created because all things were created by God. And the only things that weren't created were God Himself. And Satan ain't God. And so there are opinionated issues, but when it comes to the truth of God's Word, everything in it we can know, understand. Now, to illustrate how ridiculous some will go, if you hear this from somebody out there, and, and you're more likely, the, more, the longer this quote-unquote postmodern society goes, the more you're going to hear this. If you hear this, ask those who say, yes, I believe truth is relative. One question, ask them if you can be the cashier at the next place they order something. Because the next time they go somewhere and they order, let's say, a cup of coffee for six bucks, and they give you a ten, you give them one and say, truth is relative. They don't believe that. Ask them if gravity is true. Take them up to the highest bridge and say, is truth relative? If they believe it, say jump. You don't know what's going to happen. But they do. You see, no one really believes it. They just want to use that as an excuse. They want to use it for their own personal biases. They want to use it for their own 
realities and their own desires, their own lust a lot of times because they don't want to be wrong. They just simply want you not to know it and get upset if they do. Truth is not relative, but truth does every single time. Truth concerning God's Word every single time, and this is our second point, leads to faith. And if you already have faith based on the truth, it will lead to more and more faith. What is faith? Faith is trusting in God. Now, faith isn't belief. Belief is a part of faith. But faith is more than belief. There are two different words in the original language. How do I know that, though? Because in James chapter 2, it says even the demons believed and they don't have faith. They don't even have a dead faith. But they do believe. Faith is trusting in God. Jesus was trying to get, in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, He's trying to get the people there to understand this point. When He tells them that they can know the truth, when He talks to them about understanding this concept, and really in all His teachings, though He might not say, you can know the truth, it's implied in everything, isn't it? When he speaks from the authority of God being the only begotten Son of God, what he's saying is you can trust what I'm saying. I'm not saying it of my own accord. I'm not saying it of anyone. No, I'm telling you exactly what the Father above has told me to say. That's what Jesus says every time. Listen, this is truth. Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 24, this once again is what he's trying to get the people to see when he says to the people, judge with right judgment. What does that take? It takes truth, doesn't it? If truth is relative, if we don't have to really know truth, then there cannot be judgment because what's right for you is not right for me and what's right for me is not right for you. But Jesus doesn't say that, does He? He says, judge with right judgment or righteous judgment. What are we saying? Take truth. Take what I say. Take what I'm teaching. Take what I'm doing and what you're seeing. He is the Word of God. He is truth incarnate. John 1.1, John 1.14. He's saying, take truth and examine everyone with it. Now, the people understood to a degree what He was saying. Because right then, right after that, what do they ask? Is this the Christ? God knowing what was going to take place, Jesus understanding, He tries to get them to see He is the Christ. Judge with righteous judgment. What are they judging on? Whether or not He's the Christ. He's trying to get them to weigh the facts, in other words, isn't He? He's trying to get them to see the evidence. And some of them did. It said some of them believed. Some of them saw the evidence. Some of them even asked, right? Well, how can He not be if He's done all these things? But even they didn't go as far as they needed to go. Unfortunately, look at John 7, 25 and 26. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Right after, remember verse 24, judge with righteous judgment. Look at verse 40 and 43. When they heard these words of Jesus, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So, where, so there was a division among the people over Him. What do we learn from this? As Jesus is trying to get the people to understand truth, to look for the facts and make their decision based on that, to judge Him based on facts. The Old Testament Scriptures, all concerning Him and what would take place, all that He had done in the miraculous, all these things He had said and, said and taught, He was saying, look at the facts. Judge me according to righteous judgment. Some of them were. They were saying, listen, if you add 2 plus 2, I'm getting 4 here. But some of them, unfortunately, weren't, were they? Some of them even had some facts. Well, isn't the Christ to come from Bethlehem, the place of David? But they didn't investigate further. 
Yes, he was, and lo and behold, Jesus had. But they knew where he was living at that moment. Where he had moved from Nazareth to start his ministry, really, there in Galilee, the mother-in-law of Peter's house. So they had some facts, but they didn't get to truth because they didn't gather all the facts. And therein lies what happens more often than not with a heart that really isn't honest to truth. And it's easy to come by. It's easy to do, right? It's easy to get caught up in some of the facts, the facts sometimes we want to hear that might make us feel good. (laughs) Well, I know this part and I know that part, but I'm forgetting all these parts. But these make me feel good. These get me... Or at least say what I want it to say. Isn't this what we hear in the denominational world all the time, unfortunately? Well, I know the Bible says baptism does save. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. But it also says over here, if I ignore that, it says, Confess with your mouth in Romans 10, 9 and 10. And you will be saved. I'm going to take that one. Now, that's a fact, right? We've got to confess. Confession saves. There's no doubt about that. But that's not all the truth. When it comes to studying God's Word and the honest heart, the honest heart doesn't just find themselves satisfied with some of the facts. They want all the facts. They want every single bit of it. To illustrate this, we're going to look at how God is truth. I looked and I I scoured and there might be a verse, I might have missed it, but I didn't find anything where it talks about God and His nature in many areas about being truth. But You know where we see God is love, you see that very clearly. I didn't find God is truth. Like I said, there might be in there and I might have just simply overlooked it. But we still can come to that truth, that knowledge, that understanding by looking at the Scriptures. And here's why. God is the Word, isn't He? John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was, is God, was always God. The Word became flesh, John 1.14. But He only spoke of the Father's authority, right? So Jesus spoke that which the Father told Him to say. Did nothing more, did nothing less. He did the will of the Father perfectly. Here on earth. John 8 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. The Bible, we know, is the mind of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16, really in verse 10 it begins where Paul says, listen, I'm speaking to you the oracles of God. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit is literally searching the mind, he says, of the Father. And tells me what to write to you. And from 10 through verse 16, he talks about what that means and how that develops. But look at verse 16 to culminate that thought. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him, but we have the mind of Christ. Our to be of the same mind, have the same Bible, the mind of Christ, the Word of God, the Holy Writ. So God is the Word, the Word became flesh and spoke the will of the Father. It is God who breathed out, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, the inspired Word. That word inspired in the New King James, King James means breathed out literally. He breathed out the Word of God. It is His mind written down. And in John 17 and verse 17, in our same book, John 17 verse 17, it says, Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. The Word is God. The Word became flesh. Spoke with the Father, who's God. The Word is, the written Word is that which has been breathed out by God. And it is truth. If what God's mind is truth, God is truth, right? If what He has given us is truth, then it's His mind. And He's perfect in all things. 
God is truth. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit know nothing but truth. They are the embodiment of it. And when they gave us the Word, they gave us that which is powerful. A person that loves truth will seek truth out no matter what because they want to have a faith in God. And faith always comes from truth. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. ESV says by the Word of Christ. Faith. And it's impossible to please God without it, isn't it? Hebrews 11 and verse 6. For it's impossible to please God without faith. Faith only comes by truth. So if we do not accept that truth is objective rather than subjective, if we do not accept that truth is singular in nature, it has one meaning and one meaning only. In other words, there's one interpretation, that's God's. If we don't accept that, we cannot have faith. Again, in John 7 and 8, as we tie that together there, what's he trying to get them to realize? He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Judge, you could hear him say, judge me with righteous judgment. As you apply that to us, judge the Word of God with righteous judgment. See the truth. Therein, And our faith cannot help but grow. Which brings us to our third and final point. Truth always will lead to peace. And here's the best part about it. When we seek truth out, the knowledge and understanding of God's words, and we'll discuss that a bit more here in a second, but when we seek truth out and grow in our faith, it can only lead to more peace in our life. Think about it. Anxiety is literally defined by the not understanding what's going on or not knowing, the unknown. Or even if it's the perceived unknown, right? If you know you got a Bible study coming up and it's on a subject you don't know, are you have a little anxiety? You know you've got to stand in front of the class, give a presentation, but you haven't done the homework. You haven't really done what you're supposed to do. What's the anxiety from? Not knowing. Why are the most faithful in God the most peaceful? How is it they have the peace that surpasses all understanding? Because they have the knowledge and understanding within God's Word. They put in the effort. They put in the time. And the peace of mind that we desire as all people, we were created to want. God created us to have a longing for Him and seek peace. What is heaven? Heaven is an eternal rest, isn't it? A rest from our labors. It's a peace. That's what the goal is, is to have peace with God. God created us that way. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We should want that. And the peace that surpasses all knowledge starts and is based on on the formation of knowledge. Now knowledge is not understanding. Knowledge is the building blocks of understanding. Knowledge is information, isn't it? Now there's some of us here, I have no doubt, that have a lot of useless knowledge in their mind, don't they? My father-in-law always said he could be great on Jeopardy and them shows. He said, I got all sorts of useless information up here. Knowledge is the accumulation of information. The more you read things, the more you study, the more you investigate, the more information you gather, the more knowledge you have. And the more knowledge we have is specifically towards the Word of God is what leads to love and peace. In First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter one and verse five, we see the Christian graces, right? And you have a whole long list that ends with love. How we as people have love, which is agape love, the love of peace for all. 
In other words, desiring everybody speak the same thing, have the same mind, be of the same judgment, right? It's the love of God. The, God, the love God wants with us, that we all with Him walk in the light as He is in the light. We speak the same things, have the same mind, be of the same judgment. In 2 Peter 1, 5, it says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, the building blocks of truth, right? Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Right in the very beginning, that foundation that you're laying for peace, love, righteousness, and holiness in God has knowledge in it. Now, the idea here is, because you've already got some knowledge, right? You've obeyed the gospel, you've got faith, right? The idea is there a continual building of that knowledge. Faith, or the study of God's Word, requires a virtuous heart to gather knowledge, and knowledge is the very key to peace. It's not what unlocks peace, but it is the key to peace. Once again, you can have a lot of knowledge in an area, but if you don't understand what it means or how to use it, then you can miss the boat, can't you? You can miss the peace because, once again, the knowledge doesn't know how to be used. In that same chapter, I don't have it written down in my notes, but in the same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, if you go down, I do believe it's verse 10 there, it talks about the knowledge of Jesus Christ, obtaining the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's actually a different word. The knowledge here... Chapter 1 and verse 5 is Gnosis. The other one is Epinosis. The difference is knowledge or information versus understanding. He's saying, listen, gather the information and then understand your Messiah. By gathering the information in the Word. By gathering the information found in truth. We then can take that and apply knowledge, wisdom. We can take that and gain wisdom from it. This is why James would say in James chapter 1, you who lack wisdom do what? Pray, right? Pray for wisdom. What's he saying? Pray for the knowledge you have to be able to use it. To be able to understand it, recognize it, and know what is best. If we take the things we have and we start understanding what they mean, it changes everything. Absolutely everything in our lives. I've known only one atheist who has ever ended up obeying the gospel. Become a great member of the Lord's church. Faithful, sound, and true. That man had more knowledge of the Bible than many of our own brethren before he obeyed the gospel. A lot of knowledge. But he didn't have a clue how to understand it. He didn't have a clue how to use it the way it's supposed to be used. He could see words, but he couldn't put it to life. Jesus, while here on earth, how many times do we read him, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, say, you have read and heard that it said this or that, but I tell you. What's he trying to get him to do? Understand. You have heard you shall not murder, but I say to you, anyone who hates his brother." What's he doing? Understand the totality of what don't murder means. It means murder isn't just what happened. It's a, there's something process that leads up to it. Understand everything. People talk about the Bible being an onion that gets peeled and peeled. It doesn't matter how intelligent we are or how smart we are. The Bible is deep enough and simple enough for everybody. It's beautiful like that. But it begins with us, doesn't it? Once again, God doesn't look at what my IQ test is, thankfully. He doesn't look at that. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if I went through 10 years of college or no college. He doesn't care if I can read the Word as long as I hear it. My grandpa lost his ability to read the words. But every day he had those tape cassettes in and wore them out hearing the word. Still studying every day. God wants us to know it. You shall know the truth. 
The truth shall make you free. Now I want to illustrate this point one last before we close. And really the reason I wanted these chapters when Doug sent out the list, I said, okay, I want that. I think it was the first or second one to pick. And it's really from John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8 and verse 11. And I bring all of this about truth up because these particular passages have been abused by those outside and those in the church. These passages on the adulterous woman have been quoted out of context more often than I think any verse other than maybe Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which talk about judge not lest you be judged. After our former president, Bill Clinton, was caught in the White House in adultery, there was media article after media article that quoted, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Where did they get that? Our text. What Jesus said, mostly, they left out a few words, but pretty much what Jesus said to the men who were testing Christ, the adulterous woman. I can't tell you how many times I've personally had someone when I'm studying with them and we're looking at the Scriptures and their life doesn't add up to what the Bible says. First off, they'll say, it's what I say. I'll say, no, the Bible says, hey, he who has is without sin, let him cast the first stone. You can't judge me. There's that Matthew 7, 1 again, right? When we look at this passage and we ask the question, why is the church struggling with peace today as a whole? It's because of passages like this where it's really not that hard to understand, but because we more often than not refuse truth, we've made it hard. Instead of saying, let me really get into it, we've just simply said, we'll agree to disagree with anyone who doesn't agree with us. Or, I'll just accept whatever anyone says because I haven't put the effort in. And we've done that in the church in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, in a lot of scriptures. And this is one of those many people in the Lord. When I said I've heard it a million times, that's not from the outside world. In the outside world, I'm talking to them about the gospel. Now, there's some aspects they might not like, but I've heard that from our own brethren more often than not. Let's look at this passage real quick. As I mentioned, it really doesn't take much study to see why Jesus said what He said and why He said to the woman, go and sin no more. When we look at it, what we see is that these men brought a woman, right? A woman that was caught in adultery. Not just caught in adultery, though. They caught her in the very act of adultery. In John chapter 8, and verse 4, it says, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. What does that mean? Well, they saw her... Which means the man was there, wasn't he? You can't have adultery without the man. At least not in the act of adultery. You can mentally commit adultery, don't get me wrong, and mental adultery. That's not fornication. But they were committing fornication, the physical act. Now we don't know which one was married. We're not giving that. All we know is they caught her in the very act. Now it's important to understand. Because they said, listen, the law says stone her. But what did they do? They forgot that in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22 it says... You stone not just the woman, who? If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. That's the law of Moses. If you caught someone in the very act, you didn't pull the woman out, you pulled both. Because both that sin, both that evil needed to be purged. They want to leaven the whole lump. Israel been down that road plenty of times, didn't they? God was right in what He said. And so these people have brought the woman to Him. And said, listen, she's been caught in the very act. You need to stone her. Now they were testing Him. First off, it was against Roman law to kill anyone. They said, hey, we can go to the Romans. Get Him killed that way. Listen, He murdered. Second off, Jesus didn't even come to do that kind of job. His kingdom is not of this world, was it? They already had the law. They already had those they were to take them to. It wasn't Jesus. He wasn't a high priest. He wasn't one of the priests. Here on earth. 
So Jesus writes something on the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. I tend to think it's Deuteronomy 22, 22. <laughs> you want to see their reaction, why they reacted so way? He didn't say, well, I'll just script. No, he, he got their attention. Like I said, we don't know for sure, but I think he probably wrote the law. Listen, if you catch both, what are you supposed to do? What do they do? When he writes the law and says, you who sinned by bringing her to me, you who sinned by bringing her to me, have sinned and therefore are not worthy. You who are without sin, now cast the first stone. They, in the very act of sinning, they were trying to take the plank or the speck out of another eye. The Bible says something about that too, doesn't it, Jesus? In that judge not lest you be judged, go to verse 5 there. You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying the same thing. You who are without sin, you've got a log in your eye. You've got to take it out before you can take that other person's speck out. That other sin. He's not saying you can't judge, is he? Because as they all walked away, right? What does it say? They all walked away. And in verses 10 to 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That word condemn in the Greek literally means to pass a sentence. What did they come there to do? To get Jesus to pass the sentence. What they find out, probably already knew, but what did they get reminded of? They were sinning in doing so and therefore couldn't do what they were wanting Him to do. And so what did He say? Listen, where's those who came to condemn? Now why is that significant? Because in Deuteronomy 17, 17 it says, if you don't have a witness to the very act, you cannot stone them. What did Jesus say? Where's all the witnesses? Jesus did not condone sin. He did not say it's okay to disagree. He did not make it sound like it was all right for the woman to have sinned and now he's going to pardon her. No. What did he say? I can't. I was not a witness. I can't condemn you. The witnesses have left, but you go and sin no more. Jesus was perfect. He never broke the law. He could not have done that. But how do we get to that conclusion? It's not by ignoring truth. It's by getting to all the truth. How many people have just taken those passages and used them how they wanted to? They've perverted truth to make it into a lie. As we look at our lives and we examine ourselves... In John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, let us never forget that Jesus is trying to get the people to see truth. And not just see it, but to know it. In Matthew 16, remember, who do they say I am? Well, some say Elijah, some say this, some say that. Peter, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't say, I think, I hope, I wish upon a star. He said, I know. Why? Jesus says, you recognize truth. You heard the Father's will. You recognize truth. And now you know it. How do we go out those doors and live in this world that is so sinful and convert the world? We have truth on our side. We can know that truth. We can have that knowledge, have that understanding. And no one will be able to stand against it. Now, that's not being rude. That's not being angry. That's not being uh, hateful to people. That's saying, listen, I love your soul so much that I want you to see the truth and have it. That doesn't mean everyone will, unfortunately. But it does mean that if I can only be the light to a dying world, if truth is being seen. The only way God is glorified through the light I present is with truth. Any other, I get glorified, not the truth. Right? How many men stand up in a pulpit 
And everybody talks about them and not the truth. Well, man, he's a good speaker. Well, he's a good... Not the truth. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the way a preacher speaks or something along those lines. What I'm saying, though, is that the message has to be more powerful. The message is what's most important. Truth is where it's at. David once asked in Psalm 15 and verse 2, the question to God, who shall dwell on your holy hill? In 15, Psalm 15 verse 1, he asked, God, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Notice the very first response there in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The one who walks with God is the one who loves the truth. Who will get into the truth. Who will defend the truth. With words seasoned with salt. But the power of truth behind it. There might be some here this evening. Maybe you've been struggling with truth. Maybe you haven't been getting into the truth of God's Word like you should. Really diving into it. Listen, once again, there's a difference between gaining knowledge and understanding, right? There's a difference between reading your Bible every day and studying it every day. There's a huge difference. Atheists read the Bible a lot, but they don't study it. One last illustration, we'll close it. I might have mentioned this before. I, I met a man who preached for the Southern Baptist for 50 years. He was going to come to Brown Trail with me. After he retired, after 50 years of preaching for them, and within three months, he obeyed the gospel. Now, he was going to come, but his son got cancer, and he raised him as a Baptist, and he wanted him to hear the truth, so he was going down. He said, I can't come to school. I want to go down there. We all understood that, but he spoke to us the very first day we showed up. And I talked to him. I asked him. I said to him, listen, 50 years, three months, what happened here? He said, for 50 years, I studied the Baptist doctrine. For three months, I studied the Bible. There's a difference. Remember, truth is relative. Leaving out your personal biases your opinions, all that stuff. What does the Bible say? Maybe there's someone here struggling with that. Maybe you've been struggling with that and you would like the prayers of this congregation. You would like us to help you, pray for you, encourage you, and strengthen you. And I'm sure everyone here will do that. Encourage you, strengthen you, and help you in that. Maybe there's someone here who would like to know more about the gospel. I mentioned baptism earlier. Maybe that's foreign to you. Maybe you haven't heard that baptism does save you. If that's the case, get with me afterwards. Get with one of the fine gentlemen here, and let's look at it. Not what I think, not what they think, what the truth says. What does the Bible say? If there's someone here tonight who needs the prayers of this congregation or would like to study more, let us know by coming forward now as we stand and as we sing.